You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast on the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and on this show, you'll hear hunting tactics, stories, and strategies from hunters across the South. Our aim is to sharpen our skills as hunters and outdoorsmen, become more efficient and effective in pursuit of our craft, and even have a little fun while we're at it. And of course, no matter the pursuit, we focus on doing things the Southern way. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Southern Way Hunting Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in with us this week. We've got a good episode for you talking with outdoor writer Josh Honeycutt. Now, if you like to read articles about deer hunting and that kind of stuff, you've probably seen some of Josh's work. He writes for basically all the major outlets that are out there today and a very prolific writer. And I just love this guy's approach, especially to hunting the early season. I talked with him early in the season last year. Uh, for the How to Hunt Deer podcast. If you want to go back and hear more from him, you can go check out the September 1st episode of How to Hunt Deer from from last year, from 2022, where we talked about why Josh thinks the early season is probably the best time to target a specific mature buck. Now, in this episode, we talk about a little bit of that, why it's the best time to target a specific mature buck. But we also talk about his recent success on an absolute hammer of a deer, and how he would approach things had he not been able to capitalize on that opportunity. How he would have found that deer again had he disappeared. How he would have adjusted his hunting strategy if he wasn't able to seal the deal the night that he did. And then that deer all of a sudden started behaving a little bit differently. So great episode for you. If you want to find an early season buck, if you want to capitalize on this, you know, late September, early October, before the pre-rut really ramps up. Uh, time frame. This is going to be a good one for you. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, joining me for this week's episode, I have Mr. Josh Honeycutt on the show. I almost said back on the show. I'm actually going to run this one on a different show. But Josh, man, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. I was going back through um, some old episodes that I ran last year on the How to Hunt Deer podcast, came across the episode that we did, and it was fantastic. Like, it was just some of the best, like, down-to-earth, no-nonsense, early-season whitetail talk um, that, that I think I've had the opportunity to have with somebody. And, you know, one of the things you kept coming back to was the answer, it's situational. And you get that question or that answer a lot doing hunting podcasts because everything is so situational. But then you ran me through the situations, and I thought, man, that's see, that's what we need more of in, in, this, uh, in these kinds of conversations. Of It's situational. Here's you know five different situations and how you might address each one or how you might approach each one. So I was like, I got to get, get Josh back on the show or at least have another conversation with him. And then you killed a hammer. 
And I was like, now I definitely have to get Josh back on the show or on the show because he killed an absolute stud there in uh, in Kentucky, right? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. All right. So I was like, yeah, I need to talk with Josh again. So uh, for those who maybe don't know who you are, haven't heard of you, aren't familiar with your work, why don't you give us a quick breakdown of, of what you do? Yes, yeah, so I've been an outdoor writer since about 2010, 2011-ish, somewhere in there. And um, so I just, you know, uh, gradually started doing that part-time, eventually transitioned into being a full-time outdoor communicator because I do a lot of video and photography now. Um, but yeah, uh, so I just, uh, just an outdoor writer, uh, you know, put words together, try to anyway, and hunt deer. Man, you mentioned, you know, you got into more of the video photography, that kind of stuff. Are you self-taught when it comes to video and photography? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I have a degree in communications, and so there's an element of that within that degree. Um, you know, there's not a heavy emphasis, though, so you don't really – you get a lot of baseline information, basic stuff, introductory, introductory um, skill sets. But once, you know, once I had that in that college to have that kind of foundation, then I kind of started self-teaching from there. Right. So you kind of had enough to be dangerous and then uh, at least yeah. some to get out into the field with. Man, if – my degrees are nothing having to do with communications or photography or video or anything like that. So I'll get out in the field and I'll be taking some pictures. I'm like, man, these are going to be awesome. And I get back and I'm like, this is trash. This is, this is not good at all. This framing well, is not I've been good. There. And I still, I'm still there sometimes too. So, <laughs> Well, man, I've always been very impressed with your work. Uh, you're a very prolific writer. What all, what all outlets uh, can folks find you writing for these days? Um, you know, I've, I've been very blessed and with a lot of op- really good opportunities to, to write for different brands. And throughout the years, you know, I've, I've, I've worked and did, did whether it was writing photography video or all three, um, for about a hundred different outlets, magazines, and websites. Um, but today, right now I'm, I'm probably working for about 20 to 25 different ones. You know, um, I would say within this, this calendar year, um, but I do a lot of work for Realtree. Um, the, you know, the ones that I do the most work for is Realtree.com, HuntStand.com. Um, you know, and of course, I'm working with our social channels too. But, um, you know, those are the two biggest ones that I do a lot of work for. I do a lot of work for deer and deer hunting, North American Whitetail, um, uh, Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, you know, quite a few others. But, yeah, so if you, if you want to find some of, the, some of my work, you can go to some of these, uh, you know, prominent websites and, you know, find my author profile, and it should list a lot of my recent, recent stuff there. Right, right. Um, when we talked last time, I had just walked away from my nine to five a couple months earlier and kind of made the jump into outdoor space and outdoor media. Um, and one of the things you talked about was, yeah, now, you know, people think you're, you work for yourself and it's great, but in reality you traded working for one boss for trading for 25 bosses at a time. And man, mm-hmm. that is a hundred, that is a hundred percent true. You got deadlines mm-hmm. all over the place. And oftentimes, man, it can, it can feel super scattered, man. I, I, I have a lot of respect for the guys who've been doing this for a long time because uh, it's not just the hours. It's just the uh, oftentimes the number of things on the plate, which is, which is good because that's money coming in. But at the same time, it's like, boy, there are a lot of different things that I got to figure out how to juggle and I got to learn how to get if – I'm, if I'm going on a hunt, I need to learn how to get the appropriate content for each outlet or each thing that I'm trying to do. And that's that's a lot mm-hmm. to juggle. So, uh, but Josh, tell me a little bit about this uh, about this deer that you got. When did you shoot him? Yeah, so ended up shooting. I'm gonna pull my calendar up just so I remember my dates correctly. Um, but yeah, so I ended up shooting the deer on Tuesday, September the twelfth. 
it was the day that I finally actually caught up to the deer. Um, it was a really cool situation. Though. This is a buck that I followed for, I mean, he was only four and a half years old. Um, typically, you know, I, I'll shoot a deer that's four and a half and older. This is a deer that I really like to have, uh, maybe let go one more year but I'm, i don't hunt huge properties you know i don't manage a ton of acres um you know this particular track was on a 200 acre farm but he was living right on the edge of that 200 acre farm and so he was actually spending time to my knowledge well i don't know for sure because i don't i'm not on those properties but you know i'm i can only guess and assume but i'm assuming that he spent time probably on one two three four different properties at least um you know landowner wise and so he was living right up in the corner of our where we, he was bedding on us most of the time, and he was actually bedded on us, I think, just based on the direction that he came from uh, on us the day that I, I ended up tagging him. I'm sure he probably bedded on the neighbor some, too, because deer, you know, these deer usually have several different bedding areas depending on the situation. Um, and I don't, I, I think most of those beds are probably on us, but they, there's probably one, you know, sometimes that he was spending um, daylight hours on the neighbors but anyway um yeah so it, it's it's one of those situations where this deer you know we're talking about situational tactics uh definitely those things that, that, that same factor came into play on this deer as well but ended up uh, hunting the deer three times from the time that our season opened on september the 2nd until i finally ended up getting him on september the 12th right so uh, last time we talked, we talked a lot about finding bucks that, uh, first of all, we, we, there was this whole approach and I should have found the, the episode number before we talked about this, but if you just go look last September on the how to hunt deer podcast, you'll find the other conversation that we had, but we talked about a lot about, you know, casting a wide net, uh, finding the, where the bucks are, especially late summer, finding those concentrations, then beginning to narrow that down onto, uh, which deer specifically you're, you're targeting, but then which deer are huntable and where those deer are huntable? What are some of the, the chinks in this guy's armor that made you think, all right, this guy is huntable uh, here and here on these kinds of situations? Like what, are, what was he giving you? Yeah, so that's, that's you're talking about which deer are huntable. I actually had another deer that was maybe slightly bigger on camera, which is rare for me. Usually I'm hunting 130 to 150-inch deer. That's usually what I'm targeting each year. But for the past few years, I've been really fortunate to, to at least get on camera some bucks that were, you know, 160-plus. And uh, so there's actually another deer that was at least the same size, if not a little bit bigger than him, um, on a different property. and But the deer wasn't huntable. I was only getting deer on camera, you know, well after dark and well before daylight. And so I knew he was probably spending most of his time on a neighboring track, you know, of land. And so this deer wasn't super daylighty either. Um, just because, but, but, but I don't think it wasn't because he wasn't moving in daylight so much as he was completely unpredictable and just not hitting cameras. Um, this buck, he was, he was really loyal and has been for the past three years as i started to say he i've had this deer on camera uh two years ago as a two and a half year old deer then last year as a three and a half year old deer and then this year as a four and a half year old deer and um each year he, he he's willing to move in daylight he moves in daylight a good amount i actually saw the deer and we purposely passed him last year um i probably saw him from the stand at least five or six times maybe eight or ten times while i was hunting and then after that, I was just doing wildlife photography after I filled my deer tag in, in November and, and probably saw the deer several more times after that. But he, this deer, he like I said, he was willing to move in daylight. Um, it, it dropped, his daylight movement dropped this year from last year, which is typical from three to four. But 
he was still doing it and but when he would it was really sporadic and and seemingly unpredictable eventually i started to notice a little bit of a pattern it wasn't strong correlation but a little bit of a pattern okay um you know one of the things you just mentioned there was this deer was really visible as a two and as a three-year-old um it seems like uh, you know, a lot of things are so personality based with these different whitetails, especially when we're honing in on a specific buck. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. on highly pressured land, whether that's public, public, private, small property, wherever you're at, uh, those bucks that tend to be more daylight active are just the ones that get shot young. Like, like mm-hmm. it, it's almost it almost seems to me like that that piece of being daylight active is almost a personality trait with with some of yeah. these deer. And if you can let them yeah, get a little bit older, yeah. you can set yourself up well. Sorry, go ahead. No, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I no. apologize. Uh, but, yeah, 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 to that point, you know, personality-wise, that's I love to, to talk about it. It's one of my favorite things to talk about when it comes to mature whitetails. But, so, I'm a big follower of a lot of these whitetail research facilities, uh, college facilities, so like Mississippi State University, Penn State University. Um, there's, there's several. But um, uh, Mississippi State, they actually have done a research on – personality you know quote-unquote personalities and they do have uh it's not like personalities in the human sense for anybody out there that's listening that's not familiar with that term but it is very much uh the best term to use um in regard to to, to what it is and, and and it's these deer they exhibit uh tendencies and traits and preferences and behaviors that culminate into like a perceived personality almost and it, and and like i said it's not you know, a personality in the human sense, but it is definitely a personality in the sense that that's a unique deer that behaves differently than other deer. And so, you know, whenever you can over time figure out what personality that deer has, it definitely can help you in the hunt. Um, and Mississippi State University has done some research on that, and, and they've they've made different classifications. Uh, I think their terminologies for it is uh, a deer that tends to move quite frequently or has a large home range or moves around a lot or is really daylight active is a, is a transient personality. That's the classification. And they have the same... Uh, you know, uh, names for, for other categories for like deer that are less apt to move or, or, uh, uh, don't move as much, or they're very loyal to a small area. Um, and and I can't remember every single term that they use, but you can find all that information on their website and YouTube page, but it's, it's really cool stuff. Yeah, man, that, that MSU deer lab, they are pumping out some really, really great content. I've actually, uh, been emailing back and forth with Bronson Strickland and Steve Damaris, Hopefully, got an episode coming up with them in October. But I think I think that would be an absolute riot to to pick their brains a little bit because the, those guys, man, not only are they doing the research, but they're up to date on pretty much everything everyone else is doing as well. So, uh, did this deer catch your eye as a two year old? Did he did he stand out then, or was he just one of the bucks that was just run of the mill? But he's always there. Yeah, so he he was just on camera. Uh, you know, I had trail camera photos of him. I might have seen him from the stand. Don't remember, but no, he didn't catch my eye. Um, he, he, on that particular property, we try us and the neighbors don't try not to shoot anything unless it's at least four and a half or older. So I tend to not even really even look at a two and a half year old deer. Now that now I'll go hunt other places. So I hunt Ohio. I hunt Indiana. Uh, last year in Ohio on my the eighty acre property that I hunt up there. Um, it, it's, you know, I'll shoot a two and a half year old deer up there. Right. But, but yeah, so, you know, here at home, I tend not to, to look at the two and a half year olds quite so much. Um, uh, you know, so, so I didn't really see him at, at, 
or pay much attention to him then. But last year, he really ended up kind of sprouting into something that looked like could have some really serious potential. And so we took notice of him last year for sure. Right. You mentioned that um, you guys have had, or at least you, these last couple of years, you know, it seems like the bucks are bigger than average or maybe running a little higher than that 130 to 150 kind of uh, typical frame that you're used to. Do you think there's any contributing factor to that? Have you done anything different as far as management, food, weather, anything? No. No. Okay. Just- no, I, I think it just happenstance. I mean, I, I, like I said, I've, we've, we've had access to that particular property since 2015, if I'm remembering correctly. And um, historically, like I said, the, the place just always produced 130 to 150 this year, maybe low 50s. Um, but he, uh, you know, this just wasn't one of those things where, I, you know, I did anything to make it. I think it was just we'd had the property long enough that, you know, we had a couple of years, you know, uh, two or three years there where, you know, we just had some pretty good fortune or good luck, I guess. And maybe maybe, maybe there's some awareness in the area and some of the other people are starting to pass more deer. And so it's letting deer get to some older age classes. Um, but we haven't really operated any differently where we, you know, on the on the particular track that we have. Right. It's there's this. You know, there's two ways to approach it when you've got landowners who maybe are or aren't on board. The first, I mean, obviously try to go talk to them and see if they'll if they'll start passing the same kind of deer that you're going to be passing and, and can cooperate together if they're in the same place of their hunting career as you are where, you know, we want to manage for older age class deer. Um, the other strategy, though, if they're not quite on board is is just to show them, like let them start to see, you know, what's what's happening, what's possible, and, and it does seem like you can get to uh, – having more cooperation and then it seems like once the neighborhood begins cooperating and more deer are able to get to those older age classes like that's when you really start to see the top end potential it seems like you know for your for your specific area uh so the first sit that you went in on for this deer you finally killed him on september 12th were you after him on the opener there yeah, so I, I helped uh, my little cousin. He, he got his first archery deer that more or archery buck that morning, uh, archery deer in general, uh, his first buck he'd, he'd gotten with a bow. So I helped him that morning. Then that afternoon, um, I ended up hunting this deer, and I didn't see him. He'd been bachelored with uh, a couple of other bucks all summer, or, well, since I put my cameras out, um, I assume all summer. And um, and so it was uh, those two bucks I actually saw on opening afternoon but this deer i didn't and he ended up coming in and hitting the trail camera a day or two later and he was clean uh hit him out of velvet so i think what actually happened was on on or around september 2nd he was actually shedding his velvet and and so that's what kept him from you know for me from seeing him i think he was just hanging back in in the bedding area knocking all that velvet off um and from that time on he actually didn't didn't stay with that bachelor group anymore a lot of times bucks after they lose their velvet will still stay with their bachelor groups for another week or 10 days or so um sometimes longer but this year as soon as he came out of velvet he was done with them he was he was on his own now he still spent time still spent time around them you know you'd sometimes see them end up in the same location but he wasn't actually with them really man that's that's really interesting there there are a few things uh as exhilarating in the early season as seeing those bucks that the big ones been with come out and you mm-hmm. think you think you're going to get that shot, and then there are very few things that are more of a heartbreaker than to realize that he's actually not with them today. <laughs> you know, it's like mm-hmm. the one time he's not traveling with them uh, happens to be the time. So, all right, so you got after him on the opener. You didn't kill him till the twelfth, but you only hunted him three times. Uh, I'm curious mm-hmm. to hear, you know, what what kept you out? Was it conditions? Was it 
uh, you know, an evolving strategy for him? What, what kept you away from him to where you only hunted him <laughs> two more times? Well, I was kind of looking for, for, you know, optimal conditions. Um, you know, like I said, I did, I wasn't having a, a lot of daylight pictures of the deer. Um, and so I was just trying to make sure that, you know, I was looking for a, a good situation, uh, you know, for, for that had a little higher odds. Um, I, I studied, so what I tend to do with, with mature deer that I'm targeting, um, is I will, I will take note of their daylight appearances on trail cameras or close to daylight. And I'll look at, uh, the historical weather information for that particular timestamp and see what the wind direction was. Some deer are pretty random and there's no correlation, um, between wind directions and when they appear somewhere, but a lot of deer there are. And so this particular buck seemed to prefer a couple of different wind directions, um, whenever he would pass through some of the spots that I kind of set up for him. Um, especially the one area that I really thought that I would have a chance at him. There was one spot that I thought was like, if I get him, it's going to be in that spot. Um, you know, there might be some opportunities elsewhere, you know, and, and, you know, but, but that was the spot that I think had the, the highest odds. And so I was studying that, you know, throughout, you know, August and leading up to the opener. And I had okay conditions for opening afternoon. They seemed to align, but it was still really hot, uh, really warm weather. Um, and so after that, I actually ended up spooking a couple of deer after I got out of the stand on that opening afternoon. And I was like, well, he didn't come in. I've spooked a couple of deer. Um, we don't really, I don't really see a lot of great conditions here over the next few days. And so I decided to just kind of wait and wait for a good opportunity. Unfortunately for me, I did, uh, we did have a good opportunity to, to hunt the deer on that next Wednesday, the 6th. Um, we had a drop in temperatures, a, a good wind direction that he, he seemed to prefer, um, but uh, I had we had church that evening, and so I ended up not going. And uh, of course, he ended up daylighting in that spot that afternoon. Um, <laughs> That's and, how it always and, goes. And so, oh yeah, and uh, and so I didn't actually hunt the deer again until the eighth. So that would have been the, that first Friday of season. So like day seven of, of the season, and um, I actually climbed in and saw some again. Saw some of the deer that he bachelored with. Saw a bunch of other deer, and. Um, but in, in the setup, you know, here in Kentucky where I'm at, it is legal to, to bait. And so I did have some corn out um, for, you know, if that offends anybody, uh, I don't apologize. There you go. <laughs> but, there you go. But, but, but uh, uh, no, so there, there it is. It says there's a certain part of Kentucky where you cannot put bait out, but I'm not within that zone. Um, uh, and so, uh, I can do it here and, and all the neighbors do it. And so like, like there are feeders on pretty much or corn piles uh or both on practically every property around me and so right. uh we at least most of the time the reason that we we do it is is we will just do it to try to hold deer you know um we don't always hunt over it and in fact we hunt over it less often than we do probably um but anyway for this particular situation just to explain the way it was he was bedding up on the hilltop and the beans were down below and the area I was kind of set up in was like a pinch in the timber. And so don't, so don't just think pinch points are for the rut. Anybody who out there, they are great for the rut, but the pinch points are good all season long. Uh, if they are, um, are located in a position where, uh, you know, it's, it's taking advantage of a bed to feed pattern. So, um, so that's kind of where I was at. I was in a pinch point. So the bedding area is up on top and then there's, you know, it's a big kind of, 
round circular timber and then it comes down and pinches down into a peninsula and they kind of come down through that pinch and then start filtering out into the beans uh, which is on both sides of that peninsula but anyway so there was some corn there um and then we had beans around us and then there was a persimmon tree. They were hammering that persimmon tree. They were walking straight through that corn pile to get to that persimmon tree, not even really stopping at the corn. Some of them would stop at the corn and eat the corn, but a lot of them were just going straight to that persimmons. Um, and so that buck actually didn't see him during legal shooting hours, but as soon as legal shooting hours ended, I stood up and was packing my gear up, and I turned around. I was in a big cedar tree, and it was really bushy. You know, I, you know, I just I had really good cover, and that's why I like cedars, you know, the visual cover and scent cover. And I turned around and looked back out into the beans, and there he was, 20 yards. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. So I actually saw him on the 8th. Um, he was out in the bean field. Um, you know, I couldn't do anything about it cause it was already, um, uh, legal shooting had ended. And, um, you know, even if it hadn't had ended yet, I didn't have a shot opportunity. So, um, you know, obviously you, just kind of watched him. What are you doing that time of year? You know, early season, um, you know, it seems like it's popular these days to not hunting food sources, but man, early season afternoons, if you've got a spot and the bucks hitting the food source, like, why do I want to go step on him in his bed? Um, what are you doing to get out of there when you're hunting a food source like this in the early season though? Cause you might not see any deer and you might get out fine. Um, but you might blow 30 of them out of the field. So what are you doing to kind of get out? The best option, which, but I didn't have that option because of this particular, the way this property lays out and, and the, this is, this used to be a CRP farm. And so the deer would, some deer would, the, some of the does and smaller bucks would bed in the CRP and then some of the older does and older bucks and more dominant deer would bed in the timber because it's not a big timber area. It's just 200 acres used to be a CRP property. The CRP contract ended, and so now it's uh, uh, it's in ag. This is the first year that it's been in ag. Um, um, of course, the timber's still there, but on the particular track there, there's only about, I'm guesstimating, probably 40 acres of timber or so, um, and, and then the rest of it's open ag. And so... The deer are just stacked in in layers on that timber because um, all that bedding habitat just kind of vanished over a year, which is not a good thing. It's a completely different discussion. But um, anyway, so I can't really push too deep into the timber without bumping the deer. And, and it's okay to bump deer sometimes, but depending on the situation, situational tactics. But the problem is in this particular situation was if you bump a deer on that first layer, they're going to bump the next layer and the next layer. And, of course, the, big, the mature deer, the older deer bedding up on top, uh, it's a higher elevation. And eventually, even if you don't spook them directly, you can spook them indirectly. And so I had to, in this particular scenario, had to hunt the edge of the food where the, where the timber and the food met. The best way to hunt deer uh, from a low-impact standpoint is to not hunt the food and to not hunt the beds, but to hunt the transition routes between the two. Um, but some properties and situations don't let you do that. And so I had to hunt that food edge. And so whenever I looked out and I saw that deer behind me, I knew I was in a situation because the soybeans, this this property, well, the soybeans ran all the way to the north and south property lines. And so the only way to get back to, well, and my, my access was from the southwest and I was on the east side of the farm. So I had a long, long entry route walk um, and exit route walk. And our only access is from the southwest corner through a, you know, a, a basically there's probably 30 yards of road frontage. And and so and then it's a really difficult situation, but that's what I had to work with, and and what we've do, and we've learned to work with it throughout the years. Um, make, we've made it work, but I, I would much rather have 
at least two directions of access on a property, right. um, preferably east and west access. If, you, if you're trying to find the perfect farm to buy or lease or whatever, if, if you can, if you can get east and west access, it really depends on how the property lays out. So that's kind of arbitrary. But um, if, if I find what I consider the perfect property and it lays out perfectly, I, I prefer east and west access. West access. Unfortunately, I didn't have that. So the deer, this buck was out in the beans, and he was going out in the beans. He was going to be there all night. And then there, I looked north and south, and there was deer, you know, from property line to property line, just all out in the beans because it was um, the deer just moved early that day, and so they were already out. And so I was like, "What am I going to do?" I was like, "My only option is to is, is I'm going to spook him." Of course, eventually it got dark, and I couldn't see where he was at, but I knew he was still down the beans. You know, he could have been in the same spot. Could have went north. Could have went south. Whatever. Could have went. Could have went towards the middle of the property where the where there's a water source. Um, regardless, I was going to spook him or spook other deer, and they were in turn going to spook him. And we know that you don't have to spook a buck in directly. To, to change his patterns or change his habits or impact him in some way, you can spook other deer. And then when they start behaving differently, he's going to start behaving differently. Um, and so I knew I was kind of in a spot and I did something and I'm not advising this because it's not safe, but I ended up spending the night in that tree stand to keep from spooking the deer on the eighth. <laughs> That's what I did. Okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you just, you just decided, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to spend the night here. I got to know what went into that, man, because that that had to be tough. You're in Kentucky in oh, it September. Hard. It's hot. It's buggy. Like, what did you mm-hmm. – how did you make it, man? Like, what – you just decided, you're like, you know what, it's bedtime. Like, I'm just going to go ahead and close my eyes and, and try to make it through. Well, see, that's the thing. Like, I don't, I don't advise sleeping in a tree stand. That's not the safest thing in the world. And so I tried – you know, I I, I I dozed off a few times, but and so I'm not giving advice to anybody. In right. fact, I'm advising you to not do this. But I was just crazy enough and stupid enough to do it, I guess. And so, you know, the what I basically ended up doing was, you know, of course I had my safety harness in or still tied in and whatnot, but that doesn't keep you from falling out of the, to the ground or out of the tree stand. That just keeps you from falling to the ground. Right. Um, you still fall out of the stand with a safety harness and safety line on. It just keeps you from hitting. Hitting, hitting the bottom. Um, what I ended up doing, just in case I did doze off, so I basically pretty much pulled an all-nighter. Um, but uh, just in case I did go sleep, which I did uh, unintentionally doze off a couple of times, was I had another strap with me. And so I, I, I took it around the trunk of the tree, and I leaned back against the tree and then took it across my chest and cinched it up. That way I, I, I literally could, you know, couldn't really move. Um, and so... But yeah, it, the bugs weren't terrible, but it is September, so there were some bugs. Um, you know, there was a couple of times where I felt something crawling on me or on me, and I was like flicking it off, and who knows what it was? Could have been a you know one of them big huge spiders that you know you walk uh. through the woods in September and get the webs all over. I don't know. Anyway, so I was flicking bugs, but uh, yeah, it, it wasn't terrible. I mean, I mean, it was pretty. It was pretty rough, but you know, because it wasn't a super comfortable stand. It wasn't like it was one of those loungy climbing stands where you know it's actually pretty comfortable, or one of those big, fancy you know ladder stands. It's got you know plenty of cushion and seat. This was uh, uh, a lightweight hang-on tree stand, mm. 
kind of tucked up into a cedar tree. I actually had a limb that I'd cut off and I'd hang hung the stand just a little too low. And so the limb that I'd cut off was actually protruding up just a little bit into the bottom of the seat. And so that was right in the nether region, you know, regions and wasn't, wasn't the most comfortable thing in the world. But so I've got to fix that before <laughs> I hunt it again. But, uh, but yeah, so it, it wasn't the, it wasn't the best the best night of my life but you know i got through it <laughs> well it obviously paid off man because a few days later you end up scoring on this deer so i'm curious to hear how that went down yes yeah, so, i mean I, I hunted since i was already there i hunted the next morning i mean there had been a few occasions not a lot but a few occasions where the deer was passing through there um you know and getting back to bed late um, um but uh he, he didn't that morning he he either got back to bed earlier or took a different route but um I ended up walking around around mid morning. So I, I, I was like, man, this is twice I went after this deer and he's still got my number and didn't really have great conditions for, uh, you know, uh, the next couple of days. And so I didn't actually hunt the deer again until September 12th. Um, had a decent, uh, conditions that day, had a little bit of a temperature drop, um, had cloud cover, it was mist and rain, and, and those three things can be really good early season. Uh, one of those things can be really good early season, but when you got, you know, some decent cloud cover, not heavy rain, but light to moderate rain to cool things down, and you've got a temperature drop, you know, that's already common without that, that rain involved, um, you know, th- those those can really spark deer movement. In fact, I've, the before I shot this deer, the biggest deer of my life was a big velvet eight-pointer that I shot back in 2018, and it was a very similar condition that day. It wasn't so much of a temperature drop on its own but there was a rain event and cloudy and temperatures you know really cooled down um and that, that can be really impactful in early september just like that first cold really serious cold front in uh, early october and then again in late october can really impact deer movement too um and so that was the situation on september the 12th and so I eased back into the same spot, same stand location, and the deer moved really early. Uh, he, he in, fact, in fact, he ended up coming in about an hour with, uh, of, of, with an hour of legal light remaining, um, and so about 30 minutes before sunset. And, you know, a bunch of other deer had moved before him. Uh, the deer moved really early, and this, this ended up actually being the earliest um, that I can recall, maybe the earliest or that he had had um even considering some of the preseason uh trail camera appearances that i'd had so uh, that just goes to show how powerful um those those temperature drops can be even if it's only five six seven eight degrees um you know during the early part of the season right right yeah and early season too especially in the south you're just not you're not going to get those 10 15 degree drops very often uh in september or even into early october like it's just you're you're looking for something more in that five to seven degree range, and it's like okay, now it's now it's time to get up there and get after him. But uh, man, beautiful buck. I'm curious if there's one thing that let's say you're taking away from that deer that like you're saying, hey, he's the one that taught me this. Is there any one, mm-hmm. I guess, lesson or takeaway from this buck? Um, I'd have to think about it a little bit. There's definitely something that he reiterated for me, uh, and, and the other factor that ended up, you know helping me i think get finally getting him on that 12th was hunting him with a just off wind mm. and that's the term that that's used for that you know for basically when that deer has the the, the the base ultimately that has the wind largely in his favor to be where he is at that point in time and daylight and so um 
the win for me uh, wasn't great, but wasn't terrible. The win for him wasn't great, wasn't terrible. He was kind of coming in with not so much um, uh, it, straight into his nose. It was mo- more, and it wasn't a, a straight crosswind either, but it was kind of quartering into him, uh, if, that, if that makes sense. And so mm-hmm. he could kind of use his nose as he was coming down out of that bedding area. And they always do that when they're going back to bed of a morning. They almost always, from my experience, and, and it's not something that I learned on my own, uh, some really intelligent deer hunters like Dan Infault and others who had conveyed that to me. And then I opened my eyes to it and started confirming what they had told me. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, so they always do that when they circle back to bed of a morning, but they sometimes – We'll do that of an afternoon. And so whenever I was talking about noticing some patterns emerge, he was bedding in, in one of two places most of the time, to my knowledge. I didn't go up in the bedding area, so I don't know exactly where he was at, but based on what I could tell, he was bedding in a couple of different spots. And there would be some days where I'd go multiple, multiple days without getting a trail camera p- uh, picture of the steer, you know, leading up to deer season and even after the season end open because I didn't actually get him. And so I guess that, you know, from 12th would have been, what, day 10 of the season, 11 of the season, I guess, somewhere in there. Um, open on the 2nd, and I ended up getting him on the 12th, whatever that comes to. But um, I noticed throughout mid to late August and then, the you know, until I shot him in September that this deer – would go several days without making an appearance. It wasn't just that he would come in an hour or two hours after dark. It was like, I wouldn't even see him at all on a truck camera a lot of days. And so what I ended up believing or, or coming, coming to conclusion wise was that this deer was exiting his bedding area. And cause he could go in multiple different directions to get to soybeans. So like he was bedding up on the hilltop. Well, there's beans on the neighbors to the east. There's beans on the, on the neighbors up to the northwest. There's beans on us to the west and southwest. Um, he could go in multiple directions. And of course, there were um, there was I don't know for sure, but I think alfalfa, based on what I could see from the road that's way off to the east, that you know I can drive him down. I think he even had some access to some alfalfa on to the east that I could see from driving up and down the road. So. Uh, he could go in any direction he really wanted to to get something good to eat. And what I ended up believing was that he was going to choose which direction he chose was based on which the way the direction was, what the wind was blowing in the afternoons. Right, man. That's a good takeaway for folks. Like if you've got a buck that you've got kind of a beat on, but he's not necessarily, you know, in the same food source every evening, start paying attention to that wind direction. Start, start figuring yeah. out, okay, he, if he's got several different food options around him, you know, you're trying to put a play together, um, you know, that can really inform where you're going to be setting up, setting up somewhere where you got that just off wind from the food source into the bedding, correct? Yeah, and that's why designing properties, if you own your own land or if, if you just have the permission to to make changes to the property, designing hunting properties is the best way to, to consistently shoot mature deer because if you can lay that property out, to attract big deer, but then also make deer more predictable. And that's really what it's about. A deer's going to eat. He's going to sleep. He's going to be, of an afternoon, he's going to he's going to bed where it's the safest for him to bed and most optimal and it gives him everything he needs from a safety standpoint, from being comfortable if it's hot or cold standpoint, um, you know, and everything else that's involved there. But he, but he's, he's going to go toward food. Wherever he, he, he wants to eat at, that's where he's going. And so if you can create your or design your property or in uh, or manipulate the property in a way that makes deer more predictable um 
you want to give them multiple food options, obviously, but the best thing to do is to, 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 to offer them different types of foods that stagger at different or, or hit their prime, prime and peak at different times of the year. That way they, okay. So it's almost like a, like a situational deal with like white oaks. So like, you know, that's like the first acorns that deer target. So for example, you're going to be more successful as a deer hunter if all of your white oaks are in one spot versus having white oaks in five different directions around the bedding area. Um, and, of course, you can't really impact so much where your oaks are at, but that, I'm just using that as an example. Um, when you can kind of, I don't want to say congregate deer, but but figure out what food sources they're, you know, know where they're bedding at and then – almost streamline and condense the food sources. And, and I, that doesn't mean take food sources away. It just means giving them different food sources. Okay. So you got these food sources that peak the first couple of weeks of September, these peak, you know, toward the end of September, these peak into October. And then you got food sources that peak in November, December, January. And so you kind of know a little bit better where the deer are going to be at. So you're not offering them less food sources. You're still offering them, the same or even more food, but you're offering them different things at different time of year. And your deer actually end up being healthier that way for one, because they have food sources throughout the year instead of just an abundance of this type of food for part of the year. And it also makes them easier to hunt. So that's the, and I couldn't do that on this property. So I can't manipulate the, the landscape on this property. And so I was kind of at a disadvantage because of that, because this deer did have, soybeans in so many different directions and he you know and so i had to really dig in for the people that that were like me and i don't have my own land don't own my own land to manipulate and 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 to really uh, manage when you just really have to study the situation um and figure out your best option for that particular um uh, uh situation that you find yourself in so i use that again i use that word a lot but it's really the word that matters most i think when it comes to hunting mature deer Right, right, man. That's really good. Um, I, I want to shift gears here, and I and I think it would be good to do this through a hypothetical. Um, so this this podcast, we are specifically focused on southern whitetails uh, on this this show. So, um, a lot of what I saw and heard from people heading into the season, folks are sending me their trail camera pictures. They're showing me their trail camera pictures. They're like, man, look what's hitting my feeder. Look what's hitting my food plot. Look what's coming through this little area. Look what's leaving the cutover. You know, look at these deer that I've got and they're daylight pictures and they're all fired up and they're all excited. Um, but eventually something changes, right? Like, and those deer don't all get tagged. These hunters don't all tag out. I want to uh, present to you the situation where Josh Honeycutt goes out on the 12th and that deer gets a big old nose full of you. That just off wind strategy that is so, so good sometimes is dangerous, right? So he gets a big old nose full mm-hmm. of you, and all of a sudden, he's pressured. He knows the, the jig is up. He kind of had a thought the first day. He was like, wait a second, was there somebody here? And then a few days later, he's like, is that a dude sleeping in a tree? Uh, and mm-hmm. then now, though, now he knows for sure. Him and every other deer, they all know the yep. jig is up, right? And you're, you're seeing either um, he's going dark, you're only getting pictures of him at night, Everywhere that he was daylighting, you're only getting him at nighttime. Second, maybe he disappears, period. Maybe there's two or three of your locations. Maybe you got a feeder out, and maybe you got a food plot, 
And all of a sudden, he's not hitting those at all. He's not walking to that persimmon tree at all anymore. He's, he's changed something up. That's the situation where a lot of folks find themselves. Unfortunately, um, it doesn't necessarily register to them that those bucks are just pressured now because they never encountered them. They got, they got winded or, you know, while the buck was still mm-hmm. 250 yards away. They got winded three hours after they left because they weren't careful with their access. They got winded because they went and checked that trail camera and left scent all over that outside of that trail camera. And that buck came through and realized this isn't right. I'm calling it. When it comes to this kind of pressured position, what's the first thing that Josh is going to do when he realizes that the jig is up? Maybe first of all, what are some of those telltale signs? And that sounds elementary, but, but what happens to that buck as soon as he realizes he's pressured? And, and I want to present it in that way um, because, like I said, I think a lot of times folks maybe don't recognize it as pressure because, well, I never bumped him. He never saw me. I, I never got a picture of him on trail cam after I'd been in there. What's your first sign where you say, okay, this guy's been pressured and I need to change things up? Yeah, I mean, first, is, uh, it depends on – we talked about personalities. It depends on the deer's personality how – uh, accepting they are of human intrusion. Some bucks are far more, and, and, and even some properties, you know, the deer herd in general are more uh, accepting of human intrusion. And then there's, so like, for example, there's some properties I've hunted that they, that you can get away with a lot more as far as, you know, blunders for, with spooking deer, whether it's directly or indirectly with, uh, you know, uh, ground scent or whatever it might be. Um, and then some deer are really, uh, and deer herds are not forgiving. And so it really, but, but, but to a specific, a specific deer, particular deer, it really depends on what personality they have, um, and, and how, and over time you can kind of try to determine uh, where, what type of deer you're hunting there. And, but, it, but say that it is a deer that doesn't respond well, as far as the signs go, um, you know, in my opinion, just from the deer herd in general, if you start to see that even the does and the young bucks aren't necessarily willing to enter food sources in daylight, then you can kind of know, okay, you're having, you're, you're hunting it wrong. Um, you know, just from the deer herd standpoint. So if you start seeing a lot fewer does and, and immature bucks, not willing to hit food in daylight, you know, you've, you're not doing it the right way. You need to, you know, call an audible and try something different, you know, moving forward. You know, you need to take different entry routes, different exit routes, uh, different stand locations, whatever you got to do. Uh, try to gain access from a different direction if that's possible, whatever the case is. Um, but from a buck specific standpoint, it can be a little more difficult because, you know, if the deer suddenly vanishes, then, you know, you don't know what happened. You might have spooked him. He might have transitioned to his fall range. He Maybe he's in a new bedding area based on the conditions. Maybe he's moved to new food sources based on changing situations. Um, and so sometimes it, it can be difficult to know if that shift is, is a cause from, you know, hunting pressure or, or not. Um, especially if you didn't spook the deer directly, like, you know, you're in the field and he blows and smells you and, and gone. So that can be hard and, uh, to, to determine, uh, for one, um, you know, if that deer stops completely like appearing on trail cameras, um, and, and he's not just, uh, or, or if he makes a shift and he was doing a lot of daylight stuff and then he's like only at like 3 a.m., then you can kind of start to determine that, hey, maybe he's on to me, you know? Mm, yeah. 
Yeah. Or if he just completely disappears. But again, if he completely disappears, it might be another situation because up to 50% of bucks um, have different summer and fall ranges. Um, right. And so he might, he might be in that period where he's just shifting to his fall range. Um, if you don't know for sure that you spooked, um, or, and like I said, food sources change frequently. So like whitetail patterns, um, and that's the thing, like if you determine a deer's pattern, don't right now, don't wait four weeks to hunt that deer because deer patterns, you know, you have short, mid and long-term patterns when it comes to whitetails and, most most patterns, you know, unless you're talking about a green soybean field that's green all summer long, you know. But once you get into deer season, things chat, change rapidly, and so uh, those it's it's really important to stay on top of those patterns. And if you know, even if you spooked deer, so you can temporarily change a deer and, and spook him in one spot. Maybe he moves to a different part, or starts using a different part of the farm in daylight. Um, you can actually uh, basically you know get an assist and a score by bumping that deer to a new area maybe he stops using this particular part of the farm in daylight but he moves to a different part of the farm and starts using that in daylight because he's still going to daylight walk even if you spook a deer it's not going to make him nocturnal right that's a big misconception so just because you spook a deer doesn't mean that he's going to turn nocturnal all of a sudden doesn't work that way that deer is still going to move in daylight now he might start there's actually research on this so like during gun seasons you know in a lot of these heavily pressured gun season states so bucks actually still move the same amount of yardage and time in daylight as they were before they were pressured the difference was instead of making long linear movements they made a lot of meandering movements and so they would still move the same amount of time and distance in daylight, it was just in a more confined area or it was in a new area. And so if you spooked that deer and you know you've spooked that deer, you've got to regain, and he's not using the area that you've been hunting him um, in the past or were hunting him, you got to think, okay, he's still going to move in daylight. He might not cover as much of a straight line distance, but he's still going to be meandering a bunch. He's still going to be submitting the same amount of time on his feet in the afternoons before dark. And so you got to go back to the drawing board, think about, okay, I've pressured him here, I've spooked him here, and then really think about where that deer And he may still be using the same bedding area. Um, and, and if you're worried about, you know, a neighboring hunter or another hunter killing that deer before you, you might just have to push on in and go a little closer to that bedding area than you were before you, you bumped him. Now, that, that requires the right access and the right situation. But if you can do that, that might be their play. It might mean that you, you need to get even more aggressive uh, in that particular session. Now, I'm not saying that's the answer every time because if it's a big managed property and you got a lot of acreage and you're not worried about other hunters, the, honestly, in my opinion, the best thing is to give that deer some time. Right. You give him two weeks give him a week, give him two weeks, maybe give him three weeks. If it's early September, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't give a deer three weeks or two weeks or, or even one week if, if we're all the way up into late October. But if it's still early season and you can afford to give that deer some time to calm down and you have a lot of acreage, you're better off to be take the passive route. Unless you're worried about that deer transition into a new area in his fall range. So in that situation, again, so if you're like it's October and that deer tends to leave October the 10th or the 15th, um, you're up against the clock. And so the answer there is to get even more aggressive than you were before you bumped him, but it's got to be smart aggressive. So I know I'm balancing all over the place here, but it's one of those, situ again, situations where you got to determine where you're at and determine if you need to back off and be more passive 
uh, or if you need to ratchet it up and be more aggressive. Right, man, that, that's all really, really good. Um, some of those things we, t- we, we touched on last time we talked, I, I went ahead and pulled it up. It was September 1st, 2022 episode of How to Hunt Deer. We talked about that uh, shifting food in the early season, those micro patterns that are three or four days long, and they're going to change very, very quickly. We also talked about that fall shift. I think a lot of guys think about the fall shift of like velvet sheds, they shift, it's done. But one thing you mentioned in that episode, and I've talked with several people about it since, those shifts are, it's a process. It's a, it, it happens mm-hmm. progressively throughout the fall even. They don't just up and decide one day, you know what, I'm leaving my summer range, I'm moving to my fall rut range, and that's where I'm going to spend the whole year. It could look like a slow progression across your property to mm-hmm. another corner, or a slow move over onto the neighbor's. What's the next place, though, that you're going to be looking? So you, you bumped this deer. I know one of the things you talked about in the last, uh, last podcast where we talked, you mentioned that, like, sometimes, man, you'll just, in the early season, if you have to, you'll just dive off in a bedding area and get the information that you need to, that you need to get. What's your next step going to be to refine that deer? Like, what are, what are some of the places around where you had him? You know, I mean, and, again, this is going to be specific to the property, but what are the types of areas where you're going to go look and saying, okay, He's not using this food source anymore. Let me go see if he's using this bedding still. Are you going to dive into that bedding first, or are you going to start kind of an outside-in approach trying to sort of tighten that net around him? If I have time, the outside-in. Um, you know, if, if, if I have, a, you know, a lot of season left, or if I'm not worried about that deer transitioning, whether, it, whether it's transitioning off of the, you know, a, a food-based pattern, um, you know, so for example, like if the, if the soybeans are still green and they're going to be green for another two or three weeks, and I know he's going to keep going to those soybeans, then, you know, I have some time to do the outside in. If those beans are already turning yellow and there's not much green left and the acorns are dropping and the acorns are on the neighbors and he's going to start going on to the neighbors and I'll have like a week left to get him, then I just dive a little, I'm, I'm more aggressive. So again, you got to figure out the situation, what the situation is as far as how much you, aggressiveness you want to dial up. But, um, you know, I'll just use an example. So, so I've, I've, you know, I've shot this Kentucky deer. I'm up in Ohio. I'm focusing on Ohio now. Their season opens up this weekend on the 30th, I believe. And uh, I'm not going to be hunting opening weekend because I, I can't be there. But um, that's kind of going to be the next place that I hunt. And so we've got several nice bucks on camera up there. And it's 80 acres, but we've primarily just hunt the southern half of the farm. Um, we don't spend a lot of time on the northern 40 acres. Um, it's just thick and nasty. Like, you you literally can't walk through it. Mm. And it's just rough country bedding. It's just, it's just nasty. Like, briars, brambles, just beautiful deer habitat. But so thick and nasty that it's even hard for the deer to tunnel through it. They do tunnel through it, but it's, it's like you can't walk through it. So, we've got... We're seeing some nice three and a half and four and a half year old bucks on the southern end of that farm, but it's a lot easier to navigate. It's more open timber. It's not as nasty bedding cover as it is up on that northern half. And so we've kind of left it the sanctuary for the past several years, but we've got two bucks that are still alive. We had a couple of pictures. Well, they've been on camera every year. And then I've got one velvet picture that was blurry that I think is one of those deer from back in the summer. And then I've got another vel- a couple other velvet pictures of the other deer um, that I think is this the second buck. And one of them is nine and a half and the other one's ten and a half. Oh, my gosh. And, yes, so we started leasing this property in the 2019 season. Um, And they were both there in 2019 and they were already like 
four and a half, five and a half year old deer. Wow. And so, so, so they're anywhere from eight and a half at, which I don't think they're eight and a half. I think they're the, the two bucks. One is nine and a half. He's a tall, tight rack deer. That's heavy mass. And then the 10 and a half year old deer was, um, he's a wide deer, kind of short time, but really heavy mass. And, I think they're both still alive. Um, I've had encounters throughout the years with both of those deer. Um, two and two, two encounters with the tight rack deer, and one encounter with the wide deer. But anyway, I, I believe they're spending a lot of time on the northern part of the farm. Um, but and, and and I was really hoping that they would come back and start doing what they've always done and use that southern half. But they're like I've had one or two pictures of each of them, and that's it. And they're always coming and going from that northern direction. And so I did something really aggressive, and it may completely not pan out at all. But I actually cut in a trail um, on that north through that northern mess. I basically bulldozed it with my four wheeler and used a chainsaw to cut, you know, cut out fallen logs and stuff like that, um, you know, and and cut out those briars and stuff like that. But I, I cut back in to the, you know, through the, you know, because they bed at the very back of it. And they just, you know, some, some does will kind of bed on the, 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 the beginning of it. So, like, you've got basically food on the east, and then you move westward into that bedding area. And they just don't ever make it. Those bucks don't make it to the food in daylight because the bedding is too far back. And so I actually cut in a trail about 100 yards and brushed in a ground blind. And, yes, feeding corn because you can do that in Ohio. But, uh, you know, um uh, that was really aggressive. I did that yesterday, actually. Wow. And that was really aggressive. Really aggressive. Probably the most aggressive I've ever been in a situation like that. I don't like cutting trails in, you know, five days before deer season. But if I knew if I didn't do that, I probably wasn't going to get a crack at these deer. So, again, that was situational where it might, might ruin my season. But if those deer are willing to come back, you know, in a few weeks or even if they're not only on, you know, not willing to come back until late season, it might end up paying off. And so, um, you know, uh, I know I kind of sidetracked myself there and kind of derailed the conversation just a bit, but I was, I was using that as an example, as far as sometimes you want to be really passive and not aggressive at all, but I've hunted these deer and I feel, I ended up filling my tags on other bucks, but, um, you know, I, these are kind of been my top two targets every single year and every single year they've whipped my butt. And so I was like, I got to try something different. And so that was really, really aggressive and it may not pay off at all. Maybe the, the, the dumbest thing I've did done so far up there, but it could also end up being what actually gets one of those bucks killed. Right. And I think, you know, for the guys that, that are, you know, in a place like that where things are just super, super thick, super, super nasty. Um, a lot of times one of the best things you can do is, is cut a trail like that and it'll get, it'll get taken over a lot of times. I mean, I see that working with landowners on their properties. You see a, you cut in a trail like that through the thickest, nastiest stuff and it kind of becomes a deer highway through there. Now it can be hard to hunt because when you walk down into it, you're, you know, you got to cut a secondary trail for you. Right, right, right. Yeah. You're, you're, you're in the thick of it, in the mess of it all, but you went in and and are going to do a ground approach. I'm curious to hear a little bit about, you know, how your setup is going to shift and change a little bit hunting from the ground as opposed to, you know, hunting from a tree. Yeah. So I've, I've done some deer hunting from the ground quite a bit, actually, um, uh, bow hunting from the ground and gun hunting from the ground. Um, one thing I like to do, uh, if I'm hunting from a ground blind, especially, and, and it's kind of down in a bowl 
where I was at because that's where those deer are bedding at, you know, because the scent just does does this. Right. And so, so I, like I said, it was really thick and nasty, and all their trails are so windy. It takes forever for those deer to transition. And so I'm not actually where these deer bed. There's a big bluff. Um, so there's a big bluff on the west edge of the property, and then it, it drops down off into this big, huge bowl, and it's kind of the side, and it slopes some, but there's a creek that runs down through there, so it's kind of like a creek bottom. You've got big bluffs around, and it's just a big, massive jungle. It's a jungle, and there's deer trails through it, but they're so windy and, and turn. And I was like, these deer never make it to the food sources out on the east side of the property. It's all it is is a bunch of clover. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an old hay field, but there's a ton of in it. And so uh, I don't plant the clover or anything like that. The farmer actually mows it for hay, but there, it's just it's just a ton of clover. So that's where they're, that's their destination food source, basically. For not all season long, but for a lot of the season. And so um, the problem was these deer bed all the way, you know, several hundred yards to the, to the west of that food source and they never make it to that food source in daylight. So what I, the reason I cut that trail all the way through that is like you said, I wanted to create like a highway for those deer to get to more quickly get to that. So even if I don't end up hunting all the way back there where I cut the trail into that can kind of be a hub, like a junction, so to speak, where they come down out of the bedding area up on the bluff on the ridge, come down into that bowl. They hit that junction, you know, they socialize a little bit, might end up being one of those transition routes that I talked about earlier. And then they hit that, that trail that I cut and just take it straight on out in the food. So I can be more reserved and hunt closer to that food and get those deer there quicker. So I've actually got about two to three different setups that I created along that road that I cut in. And depending on how far and how often they're willing to move in daylight will depend where along that route I end up posting up basically. Right. Um, and so, you know, it may be all the way back at the, at, you know, at that, that hub that, you know, you know, cause I kind of opened it or it, it basically ended, started at the field where the food source was at and that trail ended at a kind of a, an area where it naturally opened up and there, and there was a lot of trails coming into. And so what I was end up doing was basically trying to create an interstate for deer, so to speak, the bedding areas kind of funneled down into that little hub is a thermal hub and a hub of traffic and then shoot them as fast as I could all the way out into that bed. Instead of them having to meander through that jungle, and it's because, like I said, there's some, some mostly just does bedding down in all that nasty mess. There's some buck beds and some rubs and stuff like that. I think they're mostly younger bucks. The bigger deer bedding up on the ridge. And, um, and I wanted to get them down off the bedding area as fast as I could and get them on moving. That way I, I could and also make them more predictable. Because, like you said, if you create those big, massive trails, like that the deer are going to adopt them and so if i could predict that those deer were going to come down out of that bedding area and hit that trail and go out that way i I had a higher odds of seeing those deer along that line of movement and jeff sturgis talks about lines of movement all the time that's where i learned that term was from him and um if you can make a, a line of movement or determine a line of movement or create a line of movement that's more predictable then you're going to have a much higher odds of filling that tag on that particular deer. So, um, and, and the great thing is, is you can establish different points of interception along that line of movement. Like I did, you know, we've got really two, maybe three different spots along that, um, transition route that we can potentially, you know, harvest a deer. Right. When it comes to refining bucks, are you depending a lot on trail camera data at that point, once they've been pressured, 
or are you thinking to yourself, look, I don't, I don't have time for trail camera data at this point. I need to be taking targeted strikes. I need to be figuring it out boots on the ground. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. That's, so that's why, you know, it's kind of why I went in the direction with what I did with this particular Ohio property, um, just a couple of uh, yesterday. So like, I'm, I haven't been getting these deer on camera since velvet, you know, and they've been out of velvet for almost, you know, not quite a month, but almost a month now. And I haven't seen them since then. So, um, and I, uh, so I, you know, I, I can move cameras around, but I really believed that that deer was just to the north. And so, um, I ended up cutting that trail in and posting some cameras and, you know, to try to determine if that deer had moved north or not, or maybe there were some other deer. And I found rubs whenever I was cutting that trail in. And I don't think they were from the deer that we were seeing on the Southern end of the property, just the way the property lays. It's just kind of, it's really divided. Um, most, most of the time, the deer that we see on the North end, aren't the deer we see on the south end even though it is only 80 acres so um yeah i mean you can move cameras around you can you know kind of start doing a, you know if i don't have my target deer pinned down and it's already into season which it's not season yet up there in ohio so I've, I've been doing the trail camera approach but um if you just do really mobile hanging hunts and and hunt it here today hunt there tomorrow not hunting your 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 permanent stand locations that you might have had long term already or have, have hunted already uh say you're in kentucky you know, where season's been in for several weeks now. Um, you know, if, you, if you're not seeing any action on your trail cameras or your permanent stands, just, just go mobile and start hunting new spots that you've not focused on already. And, um, you know, that's another term that Dan Infault uses, and uh, is, is he, he, hunts them, he hunts them down, basically, uh, and, and really starts hunting different spots and until he gets, you know, uh, to where the deer eventually is. And, and of course, you're kind of handcuffed if you hunt a small property because, you know, he might be spending time on the neighbor, but he might also be spending time on you. So, um, you know, slowly hunting the, the property and, and piecing it together. The best way to do it, if you have no idea where that deer at, is to just to be mobile and start hunting. a two-pronged approach right and i i think a lot of times guys can do uh maybe more harm than good when they're trying to refine those deer leaning too mm -hmm. much on the trail camera thing simply because you, you kind of don't have the time for that right and you and that's one more mm -hmm. intrusion that's one more negative interaction potentially that's one more spot that you've you know you've burned up one approach that mm -hmm. i've had success with found success with last year was leaving my trail cameras in the spots that they were still getting those nighttime mm -hmm. pictures. I'm like, okay, they're here at night. So I'm going to just mm -hmm. be mobile around that and start to say, okay, mm -hmm. I know they're not here till nighttime, yeah. but I know they're going to end up here. So I'm going to kind of play off of that. And I don't, again, I don't have time. I had, I had 14 days, right? I don't mm -hmm. have time for moving a bunch of trail cameras around. I don't want to put my scent and my intrusion anywhere that it doesn't need to be at this point. I'm just going to go in right. and be super, super mobile and try to, you know, make some targeted strikes on some pretty well-informed, you know, locations, but still just trying to yeah. see what I can see when I get in there. So, uh, Josh, man, this has been a great conversation. What do you have lined up next? So it sounds like Ohio is next on your list. Yeah, so I, um, I'll be hunting Ohio when they open up up there. I'll also uh, be doing some hunting up in Indiana. And uh, so I hunt um, in, in Kentucky here. I hunt private. I hunt private up in Ohio and some public up there. Um, Indiana hunt private and some public, depending on the situation and what year it is. Um, done both. Um, and then I might end up hunting some public land in Tennessee as well again this year. I started doing that a little bit last year, and so uh, I'm starting to learn some of the, some of the properties that I'm 
kind of focused on down there and so probably probably try to do that again this year too so that's kind of the kind of the hub and i have another baby on the way coming in march uh i'll be our second child and so i'm not going to get to do as much hunting next fall uh so i'm trying to to you know squeeze in as much as i can this year because i know 2024 is not going to be as eventful on the deer hunting front i mean i'll still be out there for sure uh but i won't be doing quite as much traveling away from home yeah man stack it in now uh sounds like turkey season is going to be a little bit uh a little bit tough for you Oh yeah. 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 So we're, so we're having a boy and he's going to be here just in time to run turkey season. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's awesome. Though, yeah, man. But, but, yeah. He's worth, he'll be, he'll be worth it though. That's right. That's right. And soon, Hey, you yeah. know, you, he gets a little older. You'll be able to say, Hey man, it's uh it's your birthday. Let's uh, let's jump down to Florida, chase some of these, uh, chase yeah. some of these Florida birds in March. So uh, that'll be cool. That's right. Man, tell folks where they can yeah. find you if they want to learn more. Yeah, I mean, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Uh, I don't, I don't have a big brand of my own because I spend too much time, or all of my time, not too much, all of my time, um, uh, you know, working for others as a contractor. So uh, you can find me doing the work that I do for a lot of the places that I that I, um, you know, I've, I've mentioned earlier. I uh, just, I wish I had more time to to produce content for a brand of my own, and that's actually in the works, but. Uh, it's not already up and going yet. So for now, you can just find me for where, where, wherever you can find me. All right. Awesome, man. Well, we'll be keeping up with your season. Good luck this fall. Yeah, thank you. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, please go subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast. And if you can leave us a review, I would really appreciate that. Until next week, let's keep doing things the Southern way. <laughs>